been studying through the book of Acts, and uh, um, it's been a fascinating story and journey. As the church has begun, um, uh, as, as a Jewish sect, Jesus, a Jewish man, uh, died on the cross, rose from the dead, begins appearing to his apostles, and, and a church begins to form. They begin to ask the questions of what does this mean for the world? And in Acts 15, we came to this climactic moment where um, the, the council of Jerusalem comes together and they say, all right, here it is. Gentiles, the outsiders, those that are not Jewish, they will be accepted into Christianity as Gentiles. As they are, they will come. And so the church begins to expand far beyond beyond the walls of Jerusalem and uh, far beyond the walls of Israel. And so Paul is now in his second missionary journey. And, um, and we're going to look today in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, as, uh, as he comes to a town called Athens. He's going to be waiting there in Athens uh, for other people on, on this missionary journey to join him and they can go forward. But in Athens, he comes across, uh, uh, well, uh, some distressing things and an incredible scene unfolds. So we'll read in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting with them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, uh, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us. So we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling and hearing something new. All right, so here we are. Paul has arrived in a town um, in in Athens. Now Athens is one of the oldest named cities on uh, on planet Earth. Uh, for over thou- five thousand years, um, Athens has has been in existence under the control of many different nations, people. But Athens is in Greece. And Paul finds himself 2,000 years ago in Greece, a much smaller community um, than uh, exists now in Athens. Um, but he finds himself in Greece and distressed by the nature of religion there. Now, Athens was not only for Greece, but really for the world, the central hub of religious thought and, and cultural um, development. So Athens was central to where religion was, was being born and, and then permeating out from there throughout the world. He finds himself in a city full of idols. You see, he mentioned, he mentioned in there he's preaching in the marketplace. In a first century community like Athens, um, people, uh, the, uh, the center there, the, the square where they did all their trading, this was everything. The community lived and died upon what happened in the marketplaces. Uh, can you imagine a time without cell phones and without internet and without Amazon to drop beautiful little packages on your doorstep, right? Can you imagine a time without it? Well, that was it. 2,000 years ago, none of that. You know, I've traveled in uh, Central America and South America and Africa but throughout the world now, you see the most fascinating thing. Uh, everyone has cell phones, okay? So you'll be, uh, last time I was in Peru, 
there was um, donkey-drawn carts, uh, you know, um, a man sitting on a cart, riding, being pulled by a donkey, talking on his cell phone, right? We live in a very different world uh, than, than existed 2,000 years ago. And so here's Paul, uh, found himself in, a- in Athens and in the center market, where if you need to buy food, if you need to buy clothing, if you're going to meet someone or have a meal, the town congregates here. That's the way society functioned. And as he looks around the marketplace and the surrounding region, as he looks up onto the hill at the religious buildings, either, these are the remains of, uh, of what was there, um, he, uh, uh, he looks around and he sees worship of all sorts of different gods. You see, in the first century and in Greece, uh, there, was gods, there was a god to be worshipped for everything. And they were idolized. They were built into some sort of statue of gold or silver or stone. And, uh, and people would come to worship at those places. There was many temples in Athens at the time, as well as many statues lining the roads that people could pray to and choose as their god. And so there, there would be a god for agriculture, for farming. There was a god for the city that you lived in. There was a god for the sun and for the stars. There was a god of the rain, and there was a god of, of, of anything you wanted. And so what was interesting about um, the culture, the religious culture of the day, is that... Um, uh, no businessman who worshiped the God of business would have any right to tell a farmer, no, you don't worship the God of the farmer. You should worship my God. So you see how there was this, this taboo with, you know, there was no right or wrong or better or worse in the way they thought about religion. And nor was there one truth or, or, or any concept that there, that there was oneness in religion, you know, to each your own. Now, that's interesting because I think today we live in a a culture increasingly like that. To each their own, let's not talk about right or wrong, right? And, um, And to some extent, that's okay. Have you guys ever seen those bumper stickers that say tolerance, and each letter is um, a different religious symbol from a different religious system? Coexist, coexist. There you go. Um, And and, and I've seen them in, in both contexts. Now, the term coexist I like a lot. Uh, because absolutely we are to deal with each, each other lovingly, right? We are, um, we are to treat each other as Christ treated the world, which is sacrificially, um, and, and, and for the betterment of others, right? Um, but quite often the statement culturally actually means there is no right or wrong, and, and, and it, it's all the same, right? Well, Paul is going to argue quite distinctly uh, against that. You see, tolerance uh, actually preassumes that there is difference, right? It's not difference that is wrong, or it's not believing some specific form of truth to be universal that is wrong. The coexist concept is quite good. We should learn to live together in love. Violence is not the answer to our differences, but instead that we learn to live in tolerance. Okay, so Paul comes into the city, and, and in a second we're going to read about how he engages the city. But, but Paul finds himself deeply distressed over the religious uh, tones of the day. Now, I think this is important. Last week, we talked about sharing faith early in, earlier in this missionary journey. Paul is out, and he encounters three different people in this city, and we talked about just the way God was working through him in the lives of different people and, and how he was sharing his faith and our invitation to share our faith in the world around us. Um, but what's interesting is to see in, in this passage— um, the origins of Paul's sharing his faith 
is not uh, to argue. It's not for the purpose of argument. It's not for the purpose of being right. It's not out of obligation. But Paul finds himself deeply distressed. His heart is breaking as he looks around and he sees the flaws and the weakness and the hurt that is the systems that are, the religious systems that are around him. So Paul, deeply distressed, has to act, right? And, and Paul's one to always act. If you've, if you've read much about Paul or know much of his character, Paul is the guy to go for it. He'll speak up, and he's not afraid of the consequences. So Paul speaks up, and he begins arguing in the marketplace with the everyday people. He begins, anyone that'll listen, I want to share with you about this one true God. And the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers begin to hear about this, and they are some of um, the religious leaders of the day, philosophers that had major influence in Greece and and throughout the world. So they come to him saying, Hey, this sounds kind of strange, and and I want to hear more. When's the last time someone said something to you, and you kind of just cock your head sideways, and you're like, no, surely that's not at all right, right? And some of you are thinking, yeah, just a moment when you said... But let's move beyond that. This this last week, I um, I had that experience. Uh, I got a phone call, um, and uh, it was a pre-recorded phone call that said, "Hey, your Google standing for the church is you've not uh, confirmed your address as a church, which we cannot do because we're meeting in a school building, obviously, and uh, you run the risk of it being deleted and no longer showing up in search engines. And so, so press two if you want to talk to a representative. And I said, well, of course I want to talk with the representative, and I hit two, and after five minutes on hold, a guy greeted me in a really odd manner. Like, he didn't expect me to be on the phone when I got transferred to him. It's kind of a strange start to the conversation. And um, so he starts telling me about this problem. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of the problem, and we've tried to resolve it. So far, it hasn't turned into a larger issue. And he says, well, um, we're going to need to deal with it. And, and just his mannerisms and the way he spoke, it became pretty obvious that I was not talking with Google. And so I asked the guy, um, can you tell me again, what organization do you work for? And he says, well, basically Google. And I, I didn't have time to jump in, but the word basically was all I needed to know in the conversation, right? I basically work for Google. And before I could jump in and ask him about this basically part of the conversation, he, uh, he says, okay, now the last thing you want to do right now is hang up. And I was like, <laughs> Okay, ding, I know exactly what I want to do. I want to hang up right now. So I quickly got out the phone call. But, you know, you have those conversations, and and you hear these things, and you're like, no, surely that couldn't be right, right? Well, this is the response of the people. Keep in mind the culture of the day, right? Um, It's absolute relativism. Your way is good, my way is good, all these gods. If we, don't, if we don't find a god good enough for our circumstances, we'll come up with another one and make another idol. Well, Paul comes with a very different message. And, and the religious leaders of the day, they say, we've got to dig into this because this isn't resonating with us. This is not the way we think. Okay, so um, the story continues, Acts chapter 17, verse 22 Paul has been invited to the Areopagus, uh, like one of those buildings that we we saw a moment ago, and this is the central place uh, where they debate theology um, and philosophy. Paul has been invited in, in verse 22. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus, and he said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city, and I looked carefully at the objects of your worship, 
I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth. And he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we not ought, think, we not ought to think that the, that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. Well, God has overlooked the, um, well, God has overlooked the times of human ignorance. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he had fix, has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius, the Arpet, the, <laughs> yes, um, Yes, that, and a woman named Demarius, uh, and others with them. Um, okay, the Areopagus, so the Areopagite, that's what it is. Sorry about that. Um, I knew I would stumble on that one. That's why, I, actually, my, uh, my, um, on my iPad here, it underlines it. It says it's misspelled, so let's just assume it's a wrong word to begin with, okay? <laughs> no, let's not do that. I'm just kidding. Okay, so Paul finds himself... At the Areopagus, right? The central hub of the conversation of faith and philosophy. And they say, I want to know what it is you're talking about. And here's where Paul begins. He doesn't begin with a condemnation of them um, or, or their religious system. He doesn't call them idiots, right? He doesn't start with confrontation, uh, nor does he concede to their cultural and religious norms. So he's not, he's not going to condemn, and he's also not going to concede. He's going to choose another path. And so he says to them, I see that you all are very religious, he affirms, as I walk around your city, I see uh, shrines and idols and temples to all sorts of God, and I see that you're very religious people. And as I was walking around, I just happened to notice this one idol to an unknown God. And he says, guess what? Good luck for you. I'm in town, and I get to tell you about that unknown God. So he begins to lay out for them th this idea of a God very different than any God they know. I don't know if you know much about Greek gods. Uh, you, you've heard stories, and growing up in school, you heard stories of Greek gods, but they were spiteful. Um, they were often selfish, um, uh, warring against each other and using humanity as their pawns. Right? This is, this is kind of the culture he was speaking into. That's how they perceived their gods. 
And so, um, so you'd have to do things to, to make the gods happy, right? You'd have to do things to appease them, you know? Uh, and so he's speaking to them about a God who operates very differently. Here's what he says about that God. Um, he says, this God, he is the creator, and he is the sustainer. Right? He, he, he's remembering the stories of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 of a God that uh, like intimately created the land and, and the oceans and the mountains and the trees. And he created humankind and he breathed breath of life into them. Right, And, and he says, this God that I worship, he's not like those spiteful gods that you know. No, he's the God that breathes life into his loving creation. He's a God that declares, it is very good. He says, this is the God I want to share with you today. And he says, this God that created everything, he doesn't need us. Instead, he sustains us. Our worship to him is an offering to him, but he doesn't need the things of our hands. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our things. He doesn't need us to build some sort of shrine. He says, this God is quite different. This God is for us. This God loves us. And he, in fact, sustains us instead of the other way around. So he says, this God that is all-powerful and that created us, he says to the Areopagite, think for a moment about trying then to create God. He says, if there is a God that created all of us, anything we can create with our hands, anything we can carve out of stone or form out of, out of gold, anything we can create falls far short of this God. This is the God that breathed life into us. How could we create anything that, that even comes close to reflecting him? He's speaking radical truths into a culture that doesn't want to hear it, but is ready to listen, right? So, so, so he's speaking to these people about a very different God. He speaks of one God. And I mean, how radical a message could he have in Greece at this moment? But a singular God who created and sustains the world. If they for a moment will entertain the thought, can you imagine their perception of the power of this God? I mean, think about how much a a farmer relies on the God of the harvest or the God of rain, right? Uh, That, that, you know, they, they... their, their entire prayer, all that they do in religion is for the purpose of this God acting powerfully that it would reign. And Paul comes here saying, no, there is one God with all of this power, the God that created you, the God that breathes life into you. He makes radical claims about this God. And he says, now this God, he's just, he, he's righteous, there will be a judgment, and, and he does what is right. Again, very different than their perception of the gods of the day. But he says, this God is just and he's right. That means justice simply means getting what one deserves, right, in simple terms. And so he says, this is a just God. You'll get what you deserve. And if they would step back for a moment and think, well, I'll get what I deserve, many of them, many of us might realize, well, this ends badly, Right? Uh, if, if I'm going to get what I deserve. Can't I just pay him off and be okay again? Right? Because that's the system that they live in, the gods that they serve. He says, no, this is a just God. However, here's how the story of this God has unfolded. 
in the last uh, couple decades, this man Jesus, he came and lived, and he came and died, and he was God in human flesh. You see, this very just God who, who will right the wrongs of the world rather than punishing the offenders chose in himself to take the punishment that we could all receive mercy and grace. You see, friends, this is the gospel that Paul's like, Paul lays out to them on that day. And I wonder, in the ears of our culture today, that again has become quite relativistic. You're okay, I'm okay, you know. Uh, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. I appreciate tolerance. Um, however, I wonder in our culture how this message speaks to the people around us. Like, where is, where is the um, kind of overlap of this principle that he applies to them, saying that God is very different than you perceive, but God is good and loving, the sustainer, who, who is for you and has done everything for you, right? Do, do you hear in that a glimpse of just a message of hope that many people do not know? Many people that have rejected Christianity, walked away from it, or, or, or don't adhere to it, uh, have yet to hear clearly articulated, hey, God loves you right where you're at. God is for you. God has worked on your behalf and is working on your behalf. That's the good news that Paul brings to a people who do not understand God very well. And that's the same message we've been, been invited to share with people, and it's a beautiful thing. So he tells this story of Jesus. He says, he, he, you know, he died for our sins. But he doesn't leave it there because the story doesn't end there. He says, but Jesus rose from the dead. There is a resurrection, and our hope, too, is in that resurrection. Now, at this point, they respond in three different ways. Some of them scoff at him. Some of them say, I'd like to hear a little bit more about this. And some of them come to believe in Jesus. And if we're being honest, that's the same response we can expect today. Uh, Some will scoff. Uh, Some will be curious and will begin to seek and walk with us. And some will say, I want to know that God. And so that's the outcome of the story. He has described to them a very different God, a God who paid the price for his people, and a God who invites, invites them to new hope. He shared with them the gospel of um, a, a cross that binds together the righteousness of God and, and, um, and the hope for humanity, uh, the grace that God has shown right? Uh, God is righteous, and so we will receive what is due us. Yet he took that punishment, and on the cross, he blends together these two extreme worlds. You see, because religion in the first century and today falls into a couple categories. It's either um, moral adherence, I will do good things, therefore I'm a good person, and I will receive enough, or it is, there's really just no truth out there. Right? We, we can go to either side, but the cross brings together these two polarities saying God can be righteous and yet having made the sacrifice for us, he can be merciful. And that is a beautiful message of the cross. Paul shares that with him that day. 
And so naturally, uh, some of us might be asking, so, I mean, what does, it, what does it mean for, what does this text mean for us today? What does it have for us? It has a good message of, of hope and, uh, and of resurrection and of God's grace in our lives. But I want to step back and take just a look at the big picture of the text, and I want to apply it in our lives. Um, so Paul enters the city, and he sees all sorts of temples and shrines and idols. He sees idolatry having take hold of a community that they are worshiping literally a piece of stone that they created themselves. And it sounds kind of ridiculous when you think of it in its simplest terms, right? And it sounds so far removed from the world we live in. I mean, nothing operates in the way it did in the first century in Athens when, when Paul engages it. It sounds so far removed from us. And yet, here's what I want to explore as we, as we close out today and as we take this with us for the week to come. I want to explore, if Paul walked into my home or my workplace, would he say, you are very religious? That is, you, you have learned to give yourself to things, right? Religion is the giving of ourself to something higher, something bigger. Would he say to us, you are very religious, but you've missed the mark? You've given yourself to the wrong things, right? In Athens, it was quite literally idolatry, a stone or an object of gold that they would pray to. But in our lives, idolatry runs rampant, right? The the question is, my my time and my energy and, and my resources, what am I giving myself to in this life? If Paul walked into my home, would he say, wow, Truly, you are a follower of Jesus. Or would he say, clearly, you are giving yourself to things not nearly as important as God? And so I want to just take a moment today to to listen to Paul's word, to Paul's message here to the Athenians, and listen in the context of our lives. What am I giving myself to? What is the majority of my time dedicated to? What is the majority of my finances dedicated to? My, my worries and anxieties in life, what am I giving myself to in this life? And in each of them, in, in the majority of them, they're not wrong things to give our efforts and time and finances to. However, Paul challenges us with this. Have we allowed them to become an idol, distracting us from the God who created us, loves us, has breathed life into us, and invited us uh, to new life in this life and the life beyond. And so I'll just invite us each this morning um, to consider and to take with us this thought. As I walk through my door today, walking into my home, or as I get into my car, or as I work in my yard, or as I go to my job, I want to invite us to ask this question as we walk through the week, to look at our lives through the eyes of Paul and to ask, what have I given myself to? And how can I give myself more to God? A good and loving God that invites us to be transformed and to know new life. You know, it's easy to allow work to be the dominant thing in our lives. It's easy to take pride in our homes and our manicured yards It's easy um, uh, to allow our bank account to be our sense of security in this life. It's easy to allow sports, that of our children or, or the sport we love to watch on TV, to take priority in our lives. And Paul challenges us today. You are religious, 
you have learned to give yourself to things, but he challenges us. Will you give yourself most holy to the God who created you and who loves you? Let's pray about that. Father God, we thank you for the day, and we thank you for an opportunity to be together. We thank you for the words of Paul. And Father, uh, so often as we read your word, uh, we find ourselves challenged and convicted by it. By it. Father, in grace, um, will you soften our hearts to hear where Paul speaks to us today? And then, Father, will you invite us to know um, your love in that and your invitation to new life and to healing? So, Father, where where addictions um, or where idolatry exists in our lives, Father, I ask that you will give us the courage to give it to you and to find in you a source of healing. Father, we thank you that you're the good and loving God that created us, that breathes life into us, and Father, gives us new hope beyond this moment. Father, Father, open our eyes to that. Open our eyes to how we can give ourselves to you in the week to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.